If you have a Bible, turn with me to Leviticus 24. I got to admit, going through the Old Testament um, is rather intimidating. <laughs> I looked at this portion of Scripture a couple weeks ago, and of course, the first two paragraphs there the maintenance of the tabernacle, the oil, and the, the showbread, you know, that's kind of easy pickings to some degree, you know, the typologies that are there. But then, you know, this story of blasphemy, oh, great, this is, you know, I'm just totally intimidated, right? Like, what, where am I going to, where are we going with this one, you know? And why does this have to be right there, you know? I can understand some who want to avoid the Old Testament, but boy, I have found that that's a grave error. There are so many good things in God's Word that can be extrapolated and the Holy Spirit teaches us and shows us, and I'm just so encouraging. And as we know, the, the thrust of chapter 24 is maintenance, spiritual maintenance. You know, in order to keep ourselves in good condition with the Lord, it requires spiritual maintenance. Just like our bodies, right? You have to eat. You have to have water. You need oxygen. You need heat. If you don't have those things, your body will not maintain itself. And so the same is true with our spiritual nature. We need to draw life from who? God the giver of all life. All things come from the Lord. He's the creator and sustainer, and without his supply, death will ensue. And so the priesthood in Israel were there to maintain the nation's spiritual livelihood. Yahweh had revealed his nature and character to the nation, and there was a requirement for them to discern between the holy and the unholy, between the clean and the unclean. And they also learned very quickly that one does not enter into the presence of God in some any old haphazard way. To do so is to suffer serious repercussions. And so the priests were required to maintain the care of the tabernacle. And within the tabernacle, there were these various items that re represented a greater reality uh, in their relationship with God. And we spent a couple weeks ago in the first part of the chapter talking about some of those. Um, the lampstands inside the holy place representing prayer, how important that is. The greater reality there being expressed through keeping the oil in the lamps burning continually, that we are to commune in our hearts as God's people, talking to him, listening to him, pouring out our hearts to him. Never let the fire go out within your soul, your love and adoration and zeal for God. And then, of course, the maintenance of the showbread that represented that covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel. And this steady routine of once a week replacing those 12 loaves there every Sabbath is Again, showing us that we need this daily and weekly routine of coming before the Lord to receive the bread of life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So important that we get in that daily, weekly routine of, in, of intake of God's word. So this covenant relationship that we have with Yahweh, we're his children, we're to draw life from him. 
And then right in the middle of this, there's a story that's given to us about this fellow who blasphemed the name of the Lord. And again, as the priests were required to maintain the spiritual livelihood of the nation, so the people were to maintain that which they were taught. There was a responsibility of the citizens of the nation, so to speak, to put into practice what they were taught. And one of the things that was to avoid dishonoring Yahweh by the misuse of his name. And so this came about, and in this particular situation, as we unpack this this morning, we'll see that they didn't know how to really handle this particular situation, so they went to the Lord. And so as I, again, you know, struggle with, like you do, you know, guys, you feel sometimes intimidated by the Word of God. I, you know, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all intimidated by it. The natural man does not understand the things of God, but the spiritual man understands all things. It's the Holy Spirit that illuminates our mind. In fact, I found that as I come to God in that honesty, in that transparency, see, I have no clue where we're going. Oh, what do you want to do with this? I'm like, Lord, I'm so intimidated. You know, I'm just flat out honest with him in the last couple weeks, you know. Of course, I had some interruptions with some other messages here, and that was kind of good, but finally had to get down to business, right? (laughs) So as I thought on this passage here, verses 10 to 23, uh, obviously as you give yourself to that and you're transparent, the Lord's so faithful. He just opens your eyes to see the obvious. (laughs) Like, I didn't see that before, right? Three things sort of landed in my heart, in my mind, in regards to this. And they are the name. Yahweh's presence. We want to talk about the name this morning. Number two, the mind of the Lord concerning the unknown matters of life. It's so important that the Christian, the believer, the follower of Jesus, know the mind and will of God. And then, of course, the result of sin is death. And We've all experienced death, not necessarily, we're all here right now, so we haven't personally experienced it yet, but we will. Uh, But we've had experiences of death within our families, and so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. And and again, as someone prayed this morning, you know, I just want to thank the Lord for the men that have gone on before us, and women, who have given their lives to protect our freedom, actually years and years ago, to create a freedom in a country that we are now living. And without their blood sacrifice, we would not be here today. And so we remember. That's what Memorial Day is all about. Remembering the price that was paid. Liberty does not come without a price. We were not set free without a price. The Lord our God paid the price He's the one that shed his blood and gave his life in death so we could be free. And so we never want to forget the veterans, those who have served us. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for doing something that we did not have to do so that we could enjoy this life. So we, the first part of the chapter, maintaining the oil in the lamps, maintaining the showbread, and now, verses 10 through 23, it's maintaining, actually, I believe, the fear of the Lord. The respect and the honor that Yahweh deserves. They did not know what legal action needed to take place against this man who had blasphemed the Lord. 
And so let's just read through these scriptures and then we'll unpack it accordingly. Verse 10, and let's, you've been setting a bit, so let's stand as we read the word of God, or I read it rather. Uh, Chapter 24, verse 10 through 23. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel and the Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite's woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody, that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. And when he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall put to death whoever, and again, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. And if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he is done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for the one of your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Then the Lord spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. And so the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. You may be seated. As we read through this, we do see the severity of this crime. Blasphemy was punishable as was murder with capital punishment. And we learn also that the same law applies to the native Israelite as well as the foreigner or the resident alien that dwelt among people that lived there within the nation. Now, for some reason, there was a little vagueness here in regard to this particular person because he was sort of part Israelite and part resident alien. And so this, uh, there's a need here to really understand uh, what blasphemy is. It's the idea of slandering and showing a, a, a strong contempt for God and things of God, that which is considered sacred to be considered common and and sort of spoken evil of, really. It's insulting God. It's using his name uh, in a way, uh, swearing or cursing uh, and all, and um, it's just total disrespect. And for this kind of action, death is required. It was prohibited by the law. The Israelites knew this. Exodus twenty two twenty eight, uh, And so, thus we have the death penalty enforced for this crime. The name of God. Now we don't really 
God doesn't really have a name that we can pronounce. Y-H-W-H. Yeah, we say Yahweh. We sort of, you know, in, put in the vowels there. But how would you pronounce Y-H-W-H? Wow. I mean, you just kind of, you, you know, you can't really do that without the vowels, right? In, in our capacity to pronounce words, right? And there's a reason for that. Because to name someone is to define them to descript them in such a way that you can limit them to what they are. And God cannot be limited. So thus we find throughout the scriptures many names given to God. And the the YHWH, and we're free to use that. I mean, God isn't offended by us saying Yahweh or taking that name. Just know that it's not really his name. He says, what is your name? When asked by Moses, what is your name? The Lord said, I am. Well, we can't say that. You can't say that. Well, you can say that, but it, you become I was shortly thereafter, right? God says, I am the ever existing one, the eternal one. He always is. We are not that way. So these various names are given uh, by God, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. Jehovah Tzitzikanu, the Lord our righteousness. And so these various aspects are, of his names are given to us so that whatever situation we might find ourselves involved in, we need to know that God is sufficient. He's enough to provide and be all that we need at any point in time. And there's a lot in the name of God in the Old Testament than just what I've spoken of here. You know, and I think it's important that as you read through the Scriptures, and I'm sort of, you know, making you aware of this, so as you read through the Bible, you're alerted to this, and you begin to pay attention to the pronouns and, and, the, and the discourse that takes place between God and the people that he's speaking with. You'll see that there's two personages very often in the same text and that's sort of like what's going on here well you now that you're in tune to it you can enjoy discovering these things and it becomes obvious once you're enlightened to, to some degree to this here but the idea that is as you go through this name the name the Hashem uh, the Jewish people uh, refuse to use God's name YHWH for fear of, of blasphemy or profaning it in some way, so they just refer to it as the name, Hashem. And, uh, and that's important because uh, we're not to uh, use his name in a vain way or to be careless with the use of the name. And we're kind of lax in that in our Western culture. We often, and I, you know, I say this very gently because we've all been guilty of it, but you know, when something doesn't go right, oh God, that's really not something we should be saying. Or we just say, oh, Lord. You know, it's okay to, you know, when you're in a dire situation, and you actually should do this. If you're in a situation where, you, you know, you're about, you know, it's, it's very traumatic and some things are coming down and there's fear involved and you need, you're in desperation, you need, oh, God, that's quite appropriate, by the way. But just in casual conversation, we should not invoke his name. Uh, we should be careful with that. And this, is, this was a, a conviction of, of the Jewish people and, and for good reason. Remember uh, what Jesus said 
when he was, uh, the disciples asked uh, him to teach us to pray, Lord, and he, what was the first words out of the Lord's mouth? Hallowed be your name. Holy, holiness, separated, completely otherworldly, beyond our comprehension, this being that we call Father is to be honored. His name is to be praised. His name is to be glorified. This is, so this name, Psalm 20, and I think we'll do a little bit of this name through the Old Testament to sort of whet your appetite. So as you read through it on your own, you'll be blessed. Psalm 20 and verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. And so we see the name of God here, and we see the Lord used interchangeably here. You know, it, the name of God is Him. You know, is it? Why H W H? Those letters aren't going to save you. It is the person that's going to save you. So this is important for us to distinguish. Second Samuel, verse chapter six, verse twelve. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, thirty thousand, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called the name, the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherub. So we have the ark of God referred to here as the name. And so the ark referred to as the name. This is very interesting. So what did the ark represent? The ark represented the presence of God. And so the name is again referring to the presence of God. It is the presence of God that saves you, that saves me. And I would inject this point. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Those who love God, those who are seeking God, those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we're filled with the Holy Spirit or should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And wherever we go, we're to take the presence of God with us. When we pray for people to be healed, it is not us through our prayers that heals them. It is the presence of God. And we, should, we have authority in the name of Jesus to bring the presence of God wherever we go. And it is through the presence of God that we do mighty works glorify God. It's so important for us to be filled with His Spirit, taking the presence of God wherever we go. Exodus 23 is continuing this thought of the name and further associating with this physical presence that was there in the camp. Exodus twenty three twenty, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to a place that I have say, and when, and then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And then he goes on to say, you be careful. My name is in him. If you step out of line, I'm paraphrasing here, you step out of line, he'll whack you. He's going to discipline you. Beware. May the fear of the Lord be upon you. That's the whole objective. This physical presence was there. How do we know that? Well, we can go to Judges. See it there. Chapter 1. 
or chapter 2, rather, verses 1 through 3, the angel of the Lord went up to Bochum, and he said, look, I'm not going to be here anymore. You guys are not listening. I'm leaving. And they all started crying. There was a physical presence there. In other places throughout Judges, you can see this interchange. In, in Exodus here, this 20 through 22, this visible name, the visible name was leading them. So, and then again, we refer to as the name as the presence. Exodus thirty-three fourteen, My presence will go with you. So the presence is being equated to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is also Yahweh. The name, he's represented there by the Ark of the Covenant. You see the incredible emphasis on the name. Deuteronomy 4.35 It was to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God that there are none besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that, you, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great power. Remember, it was the Lord who went before them in battle and drove out their enemies. It was the Lord who was mighty in battle. It was the Lord who was the angel standing there when Joshua came into the promised land and he asked, are you for us or for our adversaries? But I've come in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he bowed and took off his shoes. The angel of the Lord the very presence of God with his people. And this is sort of an interesting study, you know, you start getting into the name. It's kind of exciting. It opens the scripture up to you and you just begin to appreciate God's interaction and intimacy that he wants to have with his people. It hasn't changed. He wants to have a deep interpersonal relationship with you. He wants to speak to your heart. He wants you to be blessed by his presence. He wants you to know him. So you ask the questions, well, who really was the one then that brought the Israelites through the wilderness? Well, the Bible says it was Yahweh. It was Y-H-W-H. Exodus 20, verse 2. Leviticus eleven forty-five. Very clear. The scripture's clear. It was Yahweh that did that. It was God. It was the Father in heaven, so to speak, right? But then we have, as I read there, it was actually the angel of the Lord in Exodus 23, verse 20 through 23 there, as we read. It was, again, Judges 2, 1 through 3. But then we have another place that was his presence. He was always present with them. Very, I mean, you can't miss this stuff once you start looking for it, right? And so it's just wonderful. You know, one of the passages, now I'll give you a little assignment for this week. Genesis chapter 48, 15. Is there a problem? Might have to pause it. Here? Or is it the battery? Hopefully not. The angel Lord here in Genesis 48 is identified with Yahweh. And there's two figures that appear uh, there as you begin to read through these various sections, uh, 48, 15, and 16. And then, of course, as I said, in Judges, I'll give you another one there, uh, chapter 6, uh, 21 through 23, where um, 
there's two people present and then one leaves and another one continues to speak. So uh, interesting study uh, to say the least. Now, verses back to our text here. Um, the death penalty was to be enforced for blasphemy, those who would curse and dishonor the Lord, and you know, just lightly esteem him. And so they didn't really know what to do, uh, partly because he was a resident alien or part Egyptian, part um, Jewish. And so uh, was he to be treated the same way? And so um, as we look through history, we can't really find out. I don't know about you, but I was reading through this. I thought, what really went on here? So I, I was curious, and I just began to, to uh, look for uh, information that might shed a little light on what on happened here. And of course, the Jews are great with their um, legends and stories that sort of are in the Scripture, and, and they get sort of passed down orally, and sometimes they're written down for us. And so uh, this is from uh, Lang, Schaff, and Gardner, the Bible commentary that captured this from some of their, their research. And so I just thought, I, I thought you'd find it interesting in that regard uh, of what went on in this particular story that's injected right in the middle of, of taking care of the tabernacle. Uh, the, quote, the history certainly tells us how often the Egyptian offended in an ascending scale, even to blaspheming Yahweh. Verse 10 shows the Egyptian man had come in with a certain degree of imprudence into the midst of the camp of Israel where he did not belong. And from this, it's also concluded that he excited here a religious quarrel, and it could have been the one, as the issue proves, um, and again, he just notes where they received that knowledge. Uh, quote, according to these, the Egyptian son was the son of an Egyptian who had slain an Israelite in the land of Egypt and then had gone into his wife. She had borne the child among the Israelites, being herself of the tribe of Dan. And in the desert, this man claimed the right to pitch his tent with the tribe of Dan, the right being resisted by the men of that tribe, they took the case before the judge. And where it was decided against the Egyptian, on coming out under this adverse judgment, he committed the offense. So apparently, having gone before the judges, he didn't like the sentence and the judgment that was made, and he got into a fight with somebody over it. And in doing so, he cursed the Lord. And they didn't really know how to deal with this. Is there another law? Do we have a different law for this resident alien who's part Israelite and part Egyptian? How do we deal with this? And they didn't know. Very important to acknowledge something. When you don't know, it's okay. But there's always someone who does know, and that's God. What's important here is that we find the mind of God. And this struck me how often and how needed it is for the believer to know and understand the mind of God. There's three other cases, actually, as you study through the Scriptures, that Moses was confronted with a situation that he didn't know how to handle. Now, he knew a lot of things. 
And there's a lot of things that we know. The Bible tells us by Paul's writings that we have the mind of Christ. He allows us in our free will to make a lot of decisions and we have this sanctified mind because we're born again and we know the heart and mind of God. So a lot of things become very clear and simple for us to make decisions on. If it's good, it's okay to do. If it's evil, we avoid that. I mean, those are, those are the easy ones, right? But then there's a, lot, a number of things that we're allowed to choose. What do you like? What do you want to do? And there are other things that this is what God says to do and we need to do it. And then there are those situations that we want to do God's will. We need to do God's will, but we really don't know what it is. It is those times that you and I really do need to seek the mind of the Lord. And Moses was confronted uh, in Numbers 15 uh, when they were in the wilderness. And there was a guy that was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And they just had freshly inaugurated the law in some of the ways here. And so, well, they incarcerated him for a while and say, okay, what's the Lord say? And well, the Lord told him, you have to stone the guy. He totally disobeyed and disrespected what was given as a command not to do. And so they put him to death. Numbers 27 was another issue where this fellow uh, of the uh, tribe of Manasseh had no sons, but he had daughters. And they, you know, dad dies and what do we get? You know, we're not sons, so can we have you know a piece of, of the promised land? I mean, how's this supposed to work out? And so they had a really good case. And so they came to Moses, and he was stumped by it. And so let's, let's ask the Lord. And the Lord said, look, the, these ladies are right. You need to give them the inheritance that's due to their family and, and all. So uh, they wanted to protect the name of their father and their family heritage, and, and God granted that. And so we have... Uh, these various cases um, throughout the Bible, and then, of course, the one we just read here. Um, here, and also Numbers 9, 6 through 14, there was a guy that was defiled by a human cor- a corpse. So he touched a dead body on the Passover day. And what do we do? Well, you've you got to lock the guy up and, 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 and deal with, you know, go through the ritual of cleansing and keep him keep him away so just again these things were the defilement the holy and the unholy the driving this point home of the holiness of god and that god is to be treated and respected his ways are to be respected and all but coming back to the main point here and the application for you and for me is knowing the mind of god understanding his will you know, you have, and I have been consecrated to God by the work of Jesus Christ. We belong to God. We are now holy in His presence, as it were. We have been set apart holy unto Him. And it's imperative that we obey Him and we do His will. Just as the nation of Israel was consecrated unto Him, they became His people. And they were to have that loyal, obedient love to him. Same is true for the church. You know, and if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we don't know the will of God most of the time. We are, we're ignorant of a lot of things. You know, if we only didn't, if we only knew what we didn't know, you know. (laughs) And so, 
Jeremiah in chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, uh, he put it down uh, this way. He said, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man who walks to direct his steps. O Lord, correct me, but with justice. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your fury upon the Gentiles who do not know you, on the families who do not call on your name. You don't want people directing your life that have no fear of God. This is doom. This will just lead to doom. It's terrible. Now, coming into the New Testament, there is one particular passage that I want to draw your attention to. It's probably uh, the one that encompasses uh, the process that we can find the mind of God to make these important decisions that we need to make on occasion. You know, we all face perplexity. We all encounter the unknown. And if you're a true believer, you want to do the will of God. Do we do this, Lord, or do we do that? What do we do here? You know, those are always questions that seem to crop up from time to time. And there's a process, if you will. I wouldn't say formula because it, it, it's different. Uh, God uses these principles and applies them in different ways to us. But there's two basic things here. And it's very simple in that regard. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it is the whole idea of really consecrating ourselves. It's, we are consecrated to God, but there's that reconsecration. The acknowledgement that we just need to cleanse ourselves and we need to draw near to God. And hopefully that's daily and weekly, as we indicated earlier. But in Romans, he tells us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service. And not to be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might know that which is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So two things here. Present your bodies and renew your mind. If you want to know the will of God for your life, and notice this is the complete will, the perfect will of God. So the first thing is presenting yourself. You know, when you... In the, and Paul has this burnt offering in his mind uh, when we covered this earlier in the book of Leviticus. I mean, you lay the burnt offering, offering of consecration and total surrender. When you lay that offering on the altar, it's not coming back off and it's going to be consumed. You have no longer have power or any authority over that which you've given to God. It's yielded. It's gone. It's surrendered. And... Thus is the way it is to be with you. We are living sacrifices, but we have to continually yield our will for this consecration to become effective. It is what we call self-surrender. And we do this because we know that we serve a loving God. What better God to serve than the one who loves us more than we could ever imagine. In that self-surrender, there's a willingness to hear, no matter how much we may not want to hear it. There's a willingness to hear and a willingness to do what the Lord says. So we present our bodies. And then the renewing of our mind. We get dirty walking to and fro in this earth. We are defiled. We need a continual cleansing and washing and our minds need to be renewed regularly. We need a new and fresh perspective. And that comes by the presence of God. 
It doesn't take long for things to become stale. You know, there's times where we just feel so close to God. Oh, it's just, just, I know what Peter means when he said, Lord, when they're on the mountain of transfiguration, and it's like, man, it's really good to be here, Lord. <laughs> Let's build three tents. Let's just stay here the rest of our lives, you know. <laughs> it's, it's not like that. We go from mountaintop experiences to valley experiences very rapidly sometimes. And in that descent, we need to understand our minds need to be renewed. And it's through the Word of God. But it's all this understanding the mind of God comes with a willingness to consecrate ourselves. If we are unwilling to consecrate ourselves, it will hinder the process of us discovering the mind of God. There has to be the presentation of our whole self, self-surrender to God. So we see in verses 13 here uh, through 16, this penalty for this blasphemy executed. He's taken outside the camp. We receive the testimony of the witnesses here. And this is important. Uh, the law indicated that the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything shall be established. So what happens here, they lay their hands on his head. Notice that in the scripture there. Pay attention to the details. Laying on of hands is the idea of transferring guilt. Or in some cases... We're transferring holiness and blessing. But the whole idea of headship, the head. You and I are each responsible for our own lives and our own decisions. We have free will. And we will be held accountable for the decisions that we make in our free will. This guy, in his free will, exercised blasphemy against God. And those who heard it, became culpable to some degree. They had heard this and they knew in their hearts as well as the teaching that they'd received that this man was guilty of breaking the law of God and offending God. And to allow that to go on without checking it, without dealing with it, they too had, in a sense, become partaker of that sin. And the idea of laying hands on his head is now transferring that guilt back on him. This is on you, friend. We acknowledge that you have transgressed and you are guilty before God. And you are going to bear the blame for what you have done. And boy, do we see this breakdown of this in our culture. People are no longer held responsible for the crimes they commit. And we who allow that to go on bear the blame. This is what, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of application of what I'm talking about that's going on right now in our culture. And I, I think maybe this oppression that's going on through this uh, virus and all should wake us up to the fact that our freedoms are being taken from us by the ungodly. And it's really time for us to stand up and exercise our God-given constitutional rights and say enough is enough. Thank God we're able to come back to church and assemble again. And thank the Lord we're living in a, a more conservative state within our nation. Some of these other liberal places, my goodness. But it's, hopefully this will wake people up. We have a, a societal responsibility. We need to be transferring the guilt where it belongs, you know. 
So in this case, they laid their hands on this man and then they stoned him. Carried out. Now this has been hard. Could you imagine if it was this guy's wife who heard this going on and she had to testify against him? You know, these, these are not easy things, you know, and especially when it involves, and it's, you know, it hits home. Death is a hard thing, but it was death for blasphemy. He goes on here, and we'll kind of finish this up here. He goes on to talk about the various other violations that could happen and the penalties and the restitutions that needed to be made. You know, if you murdered somebody, then you died. If you took an animal out, killed an animal, then you had to replace that animal. Whatever you do, the whole idea of whatever you do to someone else is going to come back on your head. Whether you disfigure, fracture, cause blindness, break out a tooth. The main point that cannot be missed here is there's a one-tier judicial system. There wasn't uh, this two-tier, one for the priesthood and the elite, maybe, and one for the congregation. It was one law given by one God applicable to all, and that's the way it's supposed to be. In fact, for our nation to continue, we have to destroy this two-tier legal system that seems to be operating. If you have enough money, you can buy your freedom no matter what crime you've committed, and that's got to end. We should pray to those ends, by the way, that we return to the one law that we, our country was set up under. Notice here the PETA folks have it all wrong. You don't have the death penalty for killing an animal. They're an animal, for goodness sake. We've gotten things really uh, out, of, out of hand. I mean, I mean, you don't think, this is serious, I mean, you think about what's going on in our culture. We have people in certain states that are trying to open their business because they want to take care of their family, provide a livelihood, and their employees, but they're going to be arrested if they open their business. And yet, on the other hand, we let out people who have been convicted of murder and other heinous crimes. We let them free, and they go out and immediately start committing more crimes. Uh, I think the people that are in charge of that need to be held responsible. But that's my opinion. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Well, more importantly, Lord, we have a problem and we need your help to remove these people, these ignorant fools, because they're godless and they have no fear of God in their hearts. And that's why they do these foolish things. But they will be held accountable and we should hold them accountable. That's our job as the citizens of this country. So when it comes time in November, you better be voting. You better get yourself informed. And do the right thing as you, and perform your citizenry duty and be informed and vote. And pray that they don't try to steal the election through voter fraud. <laughs> My goodness, just no end to these people and what corruption they'll do to stay in power. But here, is, what is going on is known as lex talionis, and that is you know, the law of retaliation. And it isn't necessarily you know, payback and revenge. It's, it's, it's just... The idea of, look, 
whatever the crime is, there is a punishment that needs to be measured out. And whatever the crime was, the punishment should be sufficient to cover that crime. You take a life, then your life should be taken. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We're very familiar with that. Jesus sort of brought that to life. It's not, you know, revenge. It's just measuring out the adequate penalty for the law that's been broken. And that's what we really need to get back to. Fair is fair. You know, these people, if, if they would have some of the things done to themselves that they're allowing to happen to other people, they wouldn't do it. It's hypocritical. And in every sense of it, the word. And the result of this is death. And I want to close with this. This is dear to our hearts because we have to deal with the death. No one likes to f- face the idea that our physical life is going to end. And I know this, that God has a different perspective on death than we do. The Bible tells us, I believe it's Psalm 115, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. When they come into his presence for the very first time in that delight that they must see, that we must experience when we see the Lord for the very first time, we just, like, we're just blown away, obviously. You know, the best word we could probably use to describe it is wow, right? He's just going to be a major overwhelming experience for all of us. And God is, you know, this has been going on for thousands of years and, you know, I I just believe that God has a different perspective on death than we do. Job, and rightly so, chapter 18 talks about it being the king of all terrors. You know, in, in the Old Testament, the whole idea was to live as long as life as you can, the best life you can have, and have as many kids as you possibly can, and live in peace, and then go uh, to the grave. Now, in the, you know, that, that's sort of the, 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 the optimal thing, right? Uh, the New Testament sort of changed things a lot. Why? Well, it should be fairly obvious to you. Jesus died and rose again. And now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We've got a total paradigm shift coming into the New Testament when we look at death. We don't fear it quite as much for those who believe and those who love the Lord. Now we don't want it to hurt. That's the thing. <laughs> Please, I'm, I know I'm going to die, Lord, but I just don't want it to hurt. <laughs> the pain, you know, the intimidation of the, the unknown. Uh, we shouldn't fear it. You know, God is there to receive us in that sense. You know, what happens at death? You know, we are body, soul, and spirit. We don't really understand the difference between the soul and the spirit and the immaterial part of our being, but we are, we are spirit beings. And so at death, our spirit being is released from this physical body, which is just a tent, a temporary dwelling place for us while we're here. It goes back to the dust from where it came from and our spirit and soul go back to God who gave it. I mean, this is what the Bible teaches us. As Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know there's a journey as soon as our body dies and ceases to operate, we end up going into the presence of the Lord. We should not fear that. Jesus, on the death of Lazarus, going to the grave, he wept. The human side of Jesus and thinking about death, he felt 
and understands our pain. Now, I've lost three relatives in less than a year. Two of them were brothers and one was a brother-in-law. I am quite refreshed, so to speak, in experiencing sorrow when it comes to death. And I'm going to miss them. And fortunately, the greatest comfort of all, and I hear me, the greatest comfort of all when we think about death is the hope of glory, the hope of the resurrection, that by being born again and serving the Lord Jesus Christ, that when I die and this body ceases to exist, that I will go to be with the Lord. And my brothers and my brother-in-law are in the presence of God because they had received Jesus Christ. For those who are outside of faith, there is more than physical death. There is spiritual death. And death, biblically speaking, means separation. As I said, you know, at physical death, the soul and spirit separate from the physical body. Death is separation. Spiritual death is separation from God. God is the giver of all life and God has created a place for those beings who do not appreciate his presence nor do they desire his presence. In fact, they hate God. And so God is accommodating the wishes and desires of that free moral agent who desires not to be in his presence or experience his life. And he's created a couple different places for those individuals. One is referred to as hell, a place of torment, a place where God is not. He's vacated that place. Only God can do that. And eventually the Bible tells us that hell will be delivered up to the lake of fire that was created for the devil and his angels. So, to go to that place, the lake of fire... To have you, that be your eternal destiny is not God's plan for mankind. It never was and it never will be. God's will actually is that all men be saved. That all people come to the knowledge of the Son of God. That He is the true and living God. That in turning from sin and turning to Him, you'll be saved. All those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Children understand this. This is a very simple process. But why don't people come to God? Why is it that people refuse to bow the knee to the Lordship of Yahweh? Most every situation comes down to moral issues. They're afraid of who they are and the shame that they have to deal with. And I want to say to you, if you're letting your sin and your shame stand in your way of approaching God, you're not going to escape it. You will one day stand before God and all that will be there. So it's either now or later. I would encourage you to expose it now. I did it many, many years ago. I faced my sin. I confessed it to God. I asked Him to forgive me. There is no sin, there is no disobedience that you have, could ever commit that God could not forgive. His grace is eternal. His mercy is eternal. You can never exhaust the character qualities of God. His ability to forgive is beyond our ability to understand and measure. 
And it's not about us to judge one another in the depths of our sins. There's only one thing that cannot be forgiven. And this is why people go to hell. They choose to. And this is why they will end up in the lake of fire. Because they choose the only avenue that God has given. And that is to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And to have their sins forgiven. That is the power of the blood of Christ. It is atonement. It is forgiveness. The people, all the people of mankind that are in heaven are there because they have one thing in common. They've all been forgiven. We all stand at the ground of the cross and it's level. Everybody has to come the same way on broken knees through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I, that's how we deal with the death. That's how we face death. I'm not afraid to die. In fact, you might think this is sort of what I'm sort of looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to heaven. I'm not looking forward to dying in that sense, but the result of being in his presence, oh my goodness. Paradise. Man, that's the hope of glory. It's a harsh reality to know that we're going to die, but it's a greater joy to realize we're going to be with God forever. So until then, until those, that point in time comes, we are to live in the fear of God. It is the fear of the Lord that we depart from evil. There's could go on and on with this whole thing, but fearing God is the, what causes us to depart from evil. You get tempted to do something. Just think about the Lord. He's watching. I'm going to have to give an account. That's the fear of the Lord. That will deter you when you're being tempted. We all have to deal with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That is the battle. As someone, one of the fellows said yesterday in the Bible study, you know, we're not on a cruise ship. We're on a battleship. <laughs> That's what we are. We're on the battleship going in our destiny's heaven, but it's war. War against your, to fight the fight within and win because of the grace of God and the blood of Christ. Those who fear the Lord depart from evil. May we, this week, grow in our fear of God. May God just do that transforming work as we seek Him, as we consecrate ourselves to discover His mind and His heart. We'll have no fear of death. And if we make mistakes, we know that we know they can be made right. If we hurt someone, we'll do our best to restore, make restitution. We do injure one another on occasion. But that's where the love and forgiveness and repentance is all about. It's the way of life for those in the kingdom. So my encouragement to you this week is walk before the Lord. Refresh yourself. Renew yourself daily. Keep the fire burning. Keep your zeal level high and intense. Feed on the bread of life. Maintain your spiritual livelihood by fearing the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your word. There's so much here, Lord. There's so much for us to learn. So many ways for, in which we are to grow. Thank you for your merciful patience, Lord. And so I pray for ourselves, Lord, for us to, 
to grow up as your children, to become mature, to do always those things that are pleasing in your sight. We ask, Lord, that you would truly forgive us and wash us and fill us with your spirit and keep us on the right path. Don't let us go to the left or to the right, Lord, or fall prey to the flesh, to the world. Keep us, Lord. Help our nation, Lord. Pray for our leaders, God, please. Help our nation to repent and turn. Bring about a change, a revival, a renewal. Remove the wicked, Lord. And again, Father, as we remember the price that was paid by our forefathers, brothers and sisters, men and women who gave their lives for our freedoms, Lord, may that you bless them uh, that are still living here, that they are appreciated. Let them know, Lord, that we're grateful, Lord. We esteem them for their commitment and their willingness to die for us, Lord. So, Father, we give you this, this day and this week in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand?